because black talent is being gatekept from the executive level, which means the development jobs, the decision-making jobs, the green lighting jobs in media and entertainment. The industry is leaving $10 billion on the table by not telling more stories from just black people. So if you look at BIPOC, indigenous, people of color, if it's 10 million just for the B, can you imagine how many more billions of dollars are sitting there just waiting to be told? Hey y'all, and welcome back to As It Should Be. When we're growing up, seeing our experiences on TV and film and even in books and podcasts helps us understand the world and each other and really helps to shape us into who we become. Culture is so deeply personal that when you see it reflected back at you in a way that's gimmicky or stereotypical or just downright racist, it's impossible to not take that personally especially for people of color, LGBTQ folks, people with disabilities, or anyone a part of a group whose stories have historically been excluded from high-budget productions. Which is why we expect creators of these productions to actually care enough to try to get it right. There are people who build entire careers to help get nuanced and authentic cultural storytelling on screen. Sandhya Jane Patel has spent more than a decade advising on the sets of TV shows and movies for creators that want to get cultural inclusion right. I'm so excited to hear what y'all think about our conversation today. So join me in welcoming Sandhya to the show. Welcome to As It Should Be, Sandhya. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Tamara. Before we jump into our conversation, I would love for us to just talk about your story. How would you describe your journey to this career? That's such a great question, Tamara. Um, I think for anybody who identifies as being, um, in my case, Indian or from a um, immigrant culture, I was taught that there were only a few acceptable career paths, doctor, lawyer, engineer, CPA, maybe now parents are telling their kids IT, I don't know, but it was not anything that had to do with the arts or you know anything creative. Um, and so I dutifully studied my sciences and my math. And and I also, alongside of that, snuck in the art history and the fine art conservation. Um, And I ended up with three master's degrees because I had to study something that would be a fallback career that my parents could be okay with. But then I was able to go and pursue what I wanted to do, which is at that time, uh, fine arts conservation. And um, the path continues to wind circuitously. And I end up at Christie's Auction House um, being a, a cataloger there initially to start a junior specialist and working my way up to being the head of the department over the course of 15 years. During that time, that's when I really started to understand the power of storytelling, how to connect something that is completely foreign, literally, to my client 
with something that they're willing to spend money on. I mean, I was in charge of selling multi-million dollar works of art to people who did not identify as being Indian, Himalayan, or Southeast Asian. But most of my clients were white. They were Europeans, Latinx, um, Americans, etc. And so for me, learning that skill really made me understand that I want to tell stories and I want to tell them with cultural specificity, like I was doing in that role. And actually, coincidentally, at the same time, I was asked to initially be a choreographer for a Hollywood film. So while I'm working at Christie's, I'm also in a dance troupe and I'm also working as, um, uh, you know, as a cultural specialist. And someone asked me, hey, we need a choreographer. Can you come in and, and chat with us? And the next thing you know, I'm, I'm asked to be not just the choreographer for a movie called Accidental Husband, directed by Griffin Dunn with Uma Thurman and Jeffrey Dean Morgan and Isabella Rossellini and Colin Firth. I mean, all these amazing actors in it. And they were doing a set piece with Saritha Chaudhary and um, Ajay Devgan as the secondary sort of characters, um, an Indian family. And they wanted to do a set piece that involved singing and choreography. And I sort of came in, I was like, well, the names don't really match what you're trying to do. And, oh, you should probably think about this for your sets. And, oh yeah, costumes. I'm, I can get that for you much cheaper than buying it, you know, here in America. And (laughs) the next thing you know, I am assigned or I have been given sort of the responsibility to hold that cultural line from script to production to editing even, and then marketing for the film. And that's when I realized that this power of storytelling, and especially with cultural specificity, nuance, and authenticity is so powerful. I saw myself in that story. And as you know, there have been lots of movies beforehand depicting uh, Indian or South Asian people that were completely... I mean, completely off the mark. You know, that's a nice way of saying that they were horribly racist in many ways. So I realized that's what I wanted to do, but I didn't know how to do it because when your parents are immigrants and they've sacrificed everything to give you an education and a stable home and support you and launch you into your own independent career, you can't turn around and say to them, thanks, mom, I'm going to join the carnival now. It just doesn't work that way. You know, (laughs) I had a job a paying job with health insurance. I was newly married and um, I wasn't going to be able to turn that down. I wasn't going to be able to say, okay, forget Christie's. I am going to just pursue being a cultural consultant for whatever comes my way because that is completely unsteady work. And it's not the way that I can honor my parents and their sacrifices. I, I was already not honoring them by choosing something that was not scientific or rooted in medicine or what have you. So I had to continue to work at Christie's, which I love doing. It's not that I had to, I wanted to. And at the same time, build up my other skills. Because also at that time, don't forget, this is 15, 20 years ago, this idea of being a cultural consultant or a multicultural DEI content strategist didn't exist. You know, you wanted to tell a story about brown people, you were lucky they called a brown person in. You want to tell a story about a black person, you were lucky that they called a black person in, right? So there was no scope for me to continue this field at that time. And I'm just so grateful that things have changed so much that now um, storytellers, especially media and entertainment, the good ones, recognize that they need to bring in a multicultural content strategist to help make that story nuanced and authentic. 
you talked about how your career path was really not honoring your parents and their sacrifices. Um, and you had, and you had that so deeply a part of you as a part of in your mind, in every step that you are taking. That in and of itself is a cultural nuance that I don't know that we get to see so much in our stories when we're talking about those different cultures. I'm Haitian. My my parents were born and raised in Haiti. And that is so deeply ingrained into how we maneuver our, our life, honoring our parents, honoring their sacrifice, because we recognize that me being born in America required a lot of sacrifice on the end of my parents in order for me to do that. So I I have to be able, as I am walking through life, to honor that sacrifice. And I think about it in all my financial decisions, in all of my career decisions, and all of that. And I don't know that that, that nuance is told. I don't know that, that that nuance gets to be shown in, in our stories. You're absolutely right, Tamara. And I think it's alluded to in some ways, but also... Um, turned around or twisted in a way that is no longer recognizable. And so I have an example of a great way that it's being done. I have an example of a way that it wasn't well done. Um, For example, if you look at the Big Bang Theory, everybody knows that um, character of Raj and how he couldn't talk to girls for the first few seasons of that show. Real quick. So Big Bang Theory is a TV show from CBS that was on for about a decade between 2009 and 2019. It's a sitcom about a group of wildly smart quantum physicists who are all socially awkward, honestly, especially when it comes to women. However, the guy of color in their group, Rajesh Kuntapali, through most of the first few seasons is completely incapable of saying a single word to any woman. Matter of fact, here's a clip of a female character named Penny talking to Raj when she bumps into him in a hallway. Hey, Raj. (laughs) Hey, listen, I don't know if you heard about what happened last night with Leonard and Sheldon, but I'm really upset about it. I mean, they just, they let themselves into my place and then they cleaned it. Can you even believe that? How weird is Mm. that? She's standing very close to me. Oh my, she does smell good. What is that? Vanilla? Well, I mean, you know, where I come from, if someone comes into your house at night, you shoot, okay? And you don't shoot to wound. I mean, all right, my sister shot her husband, but it was an accident. They were drunk. What was I saying? She's so chatty. Maybe my parents are right. Maybe I'd be better off with an Indian girl. We'd have the same cultural background, and my wife could sing to my children the same lullabies my mother sang to me. It's obvious that they met well, but I'm just, I'm having a really rough time. Like I said, I broke up with my boyfriend, and it's freaking me out. I mean, just because most of the men I've known in my life happen to be jerks, doesn't mean I should just assume Leonard and Sheldon are. Right? She asked me a question. I should probably not. Exactly what I thought. Thank you for listening. You're a doll. Uh oh. Turn your pelvis. And it was horrible because it painted brown men, South Asian men, as being impotent or emasculated. I mean, just so many ways of making him appear less than his counterparts. I mean, they were all nerds and they're all young kids, but then he was already othered by being the, the token brown guy, and then even more othered because he couldn't have normal. 
um, interactions with other society members. That may, and, and I'm extrapolating here because I don't know the background of this character or how you know that came to be, but I'm extrapolating that that may have come from the idea that in certain places of worship, men and women are separated. In certain society groups, uh, like my cousins in India when I was growing up, they couldn't go out one-on-one with a member of the opposite, at that time, binary, opposite sex. So if you wanted to go out, you had to go out in groups always. You couldn't be out alone. And so there was always like a, not just a safety numbers, but a girl and a boy wanted to meet they had to bring two, three, five friends along and make it like a gang, you know, like a, a hangout. So I can understand why that trope came to be. But again, it's a trope, it's a stereotype, and it wasn't grounded in nuance and authenticity and reality. Why couldn't he talk to all girls and just the ones that he was really liking, he was too nervous to talk to? Something like that, something that would be more relatable to us, regardless of our um, racial identity or cultural identity. On the other hand, something that's been done really well in that respect, in terms of honoring your parents and recognizing their sacrifices, I just watched Miss Marvel, the first episode the other night with my children. And I have so many feelings about, you know, brown girls from New Jersey not saving the world, or in this case, saving the world. And I will cry a million tears. So we're just going to have to hurry up on this part here. Um, seeing myself on screen like that is just absolutely amazing. And I'm not Pakistani and I'm not Muslim, but just even a brown girl saving the world on screen. Jesus, like that's such a leap. Yeah, but maybe they're right. Maybe I spend too much time with fan art and costumes with my head stuck in fantasy land. So who's they? My mom, my teachers, Mr. Wilson, everyone. You know, there was a girl in our neighborhood who decided she wanted to go backpacking around Europe and you would... You would literally think she's joined a death cult given the way all the aunties just gossip about her. I'm lost. What does that have to do with AvengerCon? He's dressing up as Captain Marvel's weird. No, it's not. And it's childish, and I know that, okay? And, and let's be honest, it's not really the brown girls from Jersey City who save the world. Sure they do. You're Kamala Khan. You want to save the world, then you're going to save the world. But the way that she honors and dishonors her parents, their perception of her honoring and dishonoring them with the choices that she makes, even in that first episode, is very well done. The language, the dialogue, the nuance, the nonverbal language that the mother employs when talking to her daughter. I mean, again, there isn't enough time in a Marvel movie to really delve deep into that cultural nuance or a Marvel TV show, but they've nailed why it's happening. And it may be misperceived by people who are not of this culture and don't, or of an immigrant culture and don't understand that deep nuance of, of honoring your parents, but it rang true enough. It really made sense. And I'm just so grateful that they got that right. Such amazing examples. And you hit on something that was so important, which is when you were talking about Raj, you were, you said, I don't know the background of this character. And that's the problem because our black and brown stories and, and people in, in these TV shows, we're not having the ability to be full nuanced people. We never get a background story. We are an extra character that doesn't get the full breadth and depth of their, of their human 
humanity kind of explained and we don't they they don't have a lot of character development and that stops us from being able to have that nuance but what what else stops us is the fact that the the writers rooms and the directorial chairs we have been gatekept from being in those positions and so something that i that i have heard you say before is that it's being pushed on the actors to now be cultural representatives and that's just not that's not going to work that's true and i'm glad you brought that up tamara because the simple fact of the matter is having one brown person or one person representing representative of that culture anywhere in the storytelling process whether it's the writers room pre-production production etc one person is not enough we always talk about how you don't put the work on the underrepresented or historically marginalized person to educate everyone else right and you certainly don't ask them to do that work for free and that's the problem is that there are several um, recent examples actually whether you're talking about that, uh, Sex in the City reboot, that TV show that they did, or even Bridgerton, the second season of Bridgerton. Both of those um, TV shows had writers of South Asian descent, brown descent in, the, in those rooms. But it is not that person's job to then go to costumes and go to casting and go to set design and go to all the other nuances that come together to make um, a visual story and make sure they also got the memo on how to interpret the script that they've written. So who is that person? That person is me. That person is someone you pay, (laughs) you hire them to say, hey, we have these beautiful words written. We want to make sure this is interpreted properly by everyone across the, um, the process, the storytelling process. Can you make sure that happens? And that's exactly what I did for Griffin with Accidental Husband. And that is where the story came out right, where the names are correct, the costumes are correct, the set design, all of that is correct. You cannot have a writer who writes a beautiful script and then expect that everyone else is just going to get it unless you have someone helping them figure it out. So with Sex in the City, again, I can't remember the name of the TV show. Um, you know, the, the oh, oh, the new one. Um, and just like that. And just like that. Right. So there was a Diwali episode. It's it's very well known. The writer described a specific type of dress that the actor was supposed to wear called a sari. When it came to the actual set filming the scene, um, the costume was not a sari. It was a, called a langa, which is a completely different outfit. And everyone kept, and, and the actor, nobody corrected them. And the social media feed was like, well, why didn't the actor correct them? She's Indian. She should have said something. In fact, it is not her job. Her job is to say the words written on the page and deliver them to the best of her ability with interpreting that character, to live authentically under imaginary circumstances. It is not her job to correct anything in the script or on set. And furthermore, if they do, they risk being labeled as a troublemaker and not being um, invited back or getting further work. And as you've remarked before, Tamara, it's already hard enough for black and brown folks to get in the room or to even get a job, right? There's always these diversity quotas that have happened, right? One chair for the non-white person. Not going to risk that by telling other people what they're doing wrong when it's not part of your scope. All that, everything, all every, all like just. I don't. I don't need to repeat it. We just need to replay it. Everything you just said. 
like that was that's it right there. And another consequence of all of that, of the fact that we are not letting black and brown people into these rooms or now that they're now a lot of black and brown people are creating their own tables, they're creating their own production studios, but that that's an uphill battle in and of itself. Yeah. But now when these stories do get told, we now live in this state of cognitive dissonance where people are questioning the reality of whether or not that story would ever have happened. This is all just fantasy because they can't even imagine the idea of a black or brown person being a superhero, being a spy, being a a cowboy, being like whatever it is that they imagine that for some reason in this imaginary world or in these realistic scenarios, black and brown people just did not exist or do not exist. That's right. I mean, look at the horrible racism that um, Moses Ingram has faced over her role as being an inquisitor in the new Obi-Wan Kenobi TV show. She plays an inquisitor, which is one of like four um, four sensitive beings that are hired to seek out and to destroy Jedi. So it's like post Order 66, they're still exterminating the Jedi. And she's the Black Inquisitor. And then her counterparts are played by a variety of other people. And again, they didn't, my understanding is they didn't seek to cast a particular type of um, race or culture or ethnicity. They were casting for the best people for the roles. And because it's Star Wars, it can be anybody, right? But, and this is something that I've brought up recently, she is the only one out of that entire group of, of inquisitors that does not have makeup on. So her, her fellow actors, her fellow inquisitors are their, um, their character, uh, visage has this like thick face paint and they have like their, their personas and their physical appearance is different. And it's also more cohesive. Hers is starkly different because there is no, um, reimagining of her physical appearance. And also because she's the only one that's not like that. So there are two things going on. First of all, there's no reason for them to make a different choice. There must be a storyline down the road somewhere that we'll find out about why that choice was made. And secondly, you don't, one should not care. She is an amazing actor. She's doing a great job and race should not play into this whatsoever. So it's really hard because you have people wanting, like you said, they want this story to be a certain way and it's not fulfilling their preconceived notions of what that story should be. And it's fine. It's not their story to tell. They can hear it. They cannot hear it. They can turn the TV on. They can turn the TV off. But at the end of the day, the content is being made by the storytellers for a very specific reason. I'll give you another example. This author, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, she has a wonderful TED Talk um, called The Danger of a Single Story. And this is where she talks about exactly what you and I are bringing up, which is we can have a million stories in Hollywood about former bodybuilders and wrestlers shooting people up with guns, which is a whole other thing that we need to talk about at some point. But how many Terminators, how many Predators, how many like whatever movies we have. And yet there, that genre keeps expanding and it keeps being told where, but when you have one story about one brown girl or one black girl, or that's enough, that box is checked 
and nobody wants to make another story. And so what happens is that single story becomes representative of the entire population. And that's not possible. You cannot have the danger of a single story is that you cannot have it represent an entire community. You have to keep telling more stories in that community, specific, nuanced, authentic. That means it has to be individualized. We'll be right back. Reframables is Nat and Beck, two very different sisters who like to reorient life through the stories we tell. So yeah, it's a reframing project. We're working through to the other side of life's big and small challenges. It's for those who want to self-examine, but not just to make yourself better, to make the world better. So come here for the introspections and the conversations with our favorite artists and thinkers. We'll always leave you with something new to chew on and lots of laughs along the way. Find Reframables each week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Welcome to 20 Twice. My name is TB and I'm the host of this podcast where you can tune in and listen to some of that real, uncut, unedited quotes, interviews, and stories. Some funny and some inspirational. But if you listen to the 20 Twice podcast, it's always going to be real. I started this podcast to tell my truth. And, and have a little fun. You know, it's a podcast. You want to have a little fun. But along the way, I noticed that it's a lot of people going through the same issues, but never talk to each other about them. So on a 20 Twice podcast, we're here to open up the dialogue to talk about some of these difficult issues and dive into them. So check out the 20 Twice podcast on Spotify and Apple, just to name a few. Have you heard that real today? are we allowing people to see that that story is now representative of an entire community? We are also now perpetuating these ideas uh, that these stereotypes and these and these non-nuanced stories are exactly what these communities are like and every person in those communities are like. In her actual TED Talk, I think um, she gave an example and and it, it occurred to me that I was actually reading a book by another African uh, writer during this time. I was reading um, My Sister, the Serial Killer. That <laughs> book, it's so good. Well, one, it's so good. It tells the story from the perspective of a of an African woman. I believe they're based in Nigeria. So it tells the it's story of, of a Nigerian woman from her perspective of her sister who is seen in the family as the pretty one. And her sister gets these, she gets all the guys and and men kind of fall at her feet kind of thing. Um, And and her as the narrator and and main character in this story, she she falls for a guy who her sister, who then is attracted to her sister and wants to date her sister and starts dating her sister. Um, But the thing about it is that her sister is a serial killer. Every guy that she <laughs> every guy that she falls for, every guy that falls for her ends up dead. And nobody has, nobody's the wiser. Nobody's putting together the pieces as to why every guy that falls for this girl ends up dead. Um, but her sister goes through the path of, of trying to stop this man from, from falling for her sister, or falling too deeply for her sister. So that this guy who she loves doesn't end up dead at the hands of her sister, who she also loves. Um, but I was thinking when I was 
was watching that TED talk and reading this book and it just like it occurred to me that I'm like wow there's 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 very there's a very real opportunity here for if this is the only story you've ever heard about Nigerian people Nigerian women you would think that one you would you would allow yourself to perpetuate the stereotype that Nigerian women are 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 jealous of, of the prettier ones or whatever of the of the lighter skin dark skin women are jealous of light skin women because that that happens in in this story mm-hmm. um, that men because um, there were there was a, a story of a male character in this in this story who was very abusive and um, that is that helped to uh, tell the story of why the sister became a serial killer but so Nigerian men are abusive that can easily be a story that you decide is the one story and it's and it's again it, it but when we think about the all of the all of the different per- depictions and different um, different nuanced character development that we get of characters in books that are that center white people as the as the main characters cisgendered hetero like cis cisgendered heterosexual non-disabled white people as like the center of the story we have we have so many different ideas of what that might look like in real life that's absolutely true and i think um we're getting to the precipice where people understand that a single story can't stand for everybody else but it's taking a long time to get there. It's taking longer than it should, frankly, to get there. And this goes back to, so there's two references I want to give you and your listeners. One is Being Seen on Screen by Nielsen. It's a fabulous um, report that they do every year. It releases in December. So their last report was last December. And they have on one page in there, like a blowout graphic where they look at different uh, ethnicities, black men, black women, women, Latinas, East Asians, Southeast Asians, and white women, and then talk about, based on data, how those different groups, um, what those storylines are typically for those groups. And so it's exactly what you're saying, because, for example, for Black men, it's about referees and political leaders, friendship, whereas for Southeast Asians, it's about rivalry and wealthy people and their cooks. (laughs) It's like, it's changed since a year ago. And I think um, since 2020, and um, they're also changing how they analyze things because they're looking at streaming as well as television and some other metrics. So there's a lot that's becoming um, included in this report that wasn't there previously, a lot more nuanced. But yeah, it, you know, you can see that certain ethnic groups or certain cultural communities are still being portrayed with certain types of stereotypes. And it's hard, hard, hard to break out of that. Um, the second uh, reference that I wanted to give everybody was the McKinsey report that just came out, um, I think in April of this year, talking about specifically black leadership in media and entertainment. And it's kind of staggering. What they came up with was that because Black talent is being gatekept from the executive level, which means the development jobs, the decision making jobs, the green lighting jobs in media and entertainment. The industry is leaving $10 billion on the table by not telling more stories 
from just Black people. So if you look at BIPOC, Indigenous, people of color, if it's 10 million just for the B, can you imagine how many more billions of dollars are sitting there, like just waiting to be told? We don't need another Fast and the Furious. Not that I don't love cars and all that stuff and, you know, whatever. But can we please greenlight a movie or a television show since streaming is much more in the moment now? where we're telling more nuanced stories from all these other groups. I haven't even talked about disabled or LGBTQIA plus or neurodiverse. I mean, there's so many out there. That we just do not get to see. And it was so, oh my gosh, when you were talking, it occurred to me that there was one TV show that that uh, made me tear up the same way that you watching Miss Marvel with your daughter made it made you tear up. I, I just, um, and it got canceled after the first season. And I was just like, oh my God. Um, It was the very first time that I had ever seen a Haitian American girl speaking Creole with her family in an American TV show. And I had never seen this before. It was um, it was a dang, I'm forgetting the name of it, but it was a TV show that was about uh, it was about uh, teenagers in high school that uh, were facing uh, like school shootings and and things like that. Um, So it was it was but the cast was very diverse. There were black kids, there were brown kids. It was based in New York and it looked like New York. Like it was based in, it was based in Brooklyn and looked like Brooklyn and sounded like Brooklyn. And, um, but they were all, but they were also facing the, the trauma of real life reality high schoolers, um, in America right now. Um, and so I, I will definitely like say it in the episode before I I post it. If I, if I remember the name, it was Grand Army y'all. Do y'all remember Grand Army? That show was dope. Um, but but there was a character there who she was a teenager. She was she was black. She was living at home with her mom, her grandmother and her older sister. And her grandmother did not speak English at all in this in this story. Yep. Her grandma was speaking to her in Creole and her and she was speaking back to her grandma in English. And that's exactly how we talk in our homes. You know? Like in Spider-Man, um, you know, the the. Spider-Man's friend, the guy, the guy in the chair, um, he's speaking Tagalog to his grandmother and, or no, he's speaking in English to her. She's speaking back to him in Tagalog and they totally understand each other perfectly. And it was so beautiful to watch that because it's such a, it wasn't done without any fanfare, but just like you're saying in this TV show, it's just reality. And in all of us, doesn't matter if we speak Creole or Tagalog or any other language, we identify with that because we all did that with our grandparents. And that's why I say as a South Asian woman, it's not just that I can only speak to nuance and authenticity in my own culture. I know as a historically marginalized person, what it takes to tell an authentic story from any historically marginalized group. Because at the end of the day, that gaze coming in is exactly the same. You know, I like to say this is why my company is called Culture Prism, because I like to say that I'm the prism that refracts that white light into all the different colors, the cis, white, male, het, gaze into all the different colors. And it's not to say that anyone's at fault or that nobody wants to do this work. I I believe in extending space and grace and knowing that people want to partner with me to tell these stories authentically, but they don't know how to do it. And that's okay too. I don't know how to tell stories from your culture, but I know what questions to ask and how to find the information 
information needed to tell that story with nuance and authenticity. And then I call up my friend Tamara and I'm like, Tamara, we have an opportunity here. What do you want to see in costume? What do you want to see in dialogue? What has to be there when the grandma is yelling at her granddaughter? Like what kind of nonverbal body language is she going to use that every single person will be like, damn, she is angry. It doesn't matter what she's saying. It doesn't matter if I can't understand what she's saying. I can read what's happening here, you know? And a person who doesn't understand what it's like to straddle two cultures or doesn't understand what it's like to speak multiple languages or have to navigate as a third culture kid between one or more cultures is not going to understand what the questions are to be asked to make that story happen, to make those nuances and details part of that story so that people like you and me and everyone else who's not, you know, who is from a historically marginalized group can look at that and be like, yep, they did the work. They got it right. They care. And because they care, I'm going to continue to buy their product. I love that this is your job. (laughs) (laughs) I love that it's taken me this long to get here, but that I've gotten here because the great thing about being in the role that I'm in now, because I am an independent consultant, I can tell people exactly what I think and they can take it or leave it, but I am free to be honest and blunt and to sort of help them partner with them in a way that I hope is productive Um, But ultimately, being independent allows me to speak my mind, which, as you I'm sure, you know, um, is very difficult to do when we are raised the way we are. I can't thank you enough for having been doing this work like this work is amazing. The fact that you are putting yourself in the position where you are having to speak to these cultural experiences, having to be in a really uncomfortable space of having to correct people and explain to them why this is un- why this is not okay. You are really doing the work to recreate the world as it should be. And that honestly, like, I can't thank you enough for doing that. But in in the same vein, I love to ask all of my all of my guests the question of as you are doing this work, how are you making sure that this work doesn't kill you? What does self-care look like for Sandhya? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for asking that, Tamara. And I feel like that's such an important question that we should all be asking every day of our friends and colleagues and um, of each other, because centering self-care and centering the fact that we all need to create um, space for ourselves is really important. And it is the first thing to go, um, especially when we wear many hats um, as a parent, as a person of color, as a woman, as the only in many rooms. For me, self-care, I mean, I don't really know what that is at the moment, but for me, self-care is um, a few different things. Um, Oftentimes it's giving, it, it can be something as simple as a mental shift where I give myself permission to take the night off, um, you know, where I give myself permission to not think about a piece of work that I have to accomplish. So um, instead, especially now that it's becoming summertime and, and you know, we're all the kids are getting out of school. Self-care a lot of times looks like sitting down with my children and playing, you know, Magic the Gathering or Unstable Unicorns or uh, Ticket to Ride because I love winning games against my family. I'm really good at it. And when they beat me, I'm proud of them for doing it. (laughs) Um, Self-care may look like just, you know, watching... Obi-Wan or Marvel or Octonauts with my daughter who wants to be a marine biologist and supporting her in that dream or, um, you know, looking at my son and, and just sort of like pausing from it and being like, oh, my God, I get to do this. And I got to do it twice. I got to I get to be a parent twice, you know, to two children. 
Um, self-care looks like what I did last night, which is um, meet some friends in real life, IRL, um, for a couple of drinks. And I, it was, it took a lot out of me because, you know, um, being extroverted, especially after a pandemic is really difficult to get back into that habit. I'm extremely gregarious and extroverted, or I used to be. And now I'm like, I just want to stay home in my pajamas. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, getting a pedicure and sitting in that massage chair and, pretending that, you know, I'm somewhere else for a minute. Yeah. Yes. Yes. All of that. I love winning is the definition of like a self-aware queen that can also like apply that to self-care. Like It's not, that's never, it never occurred to me to be like, I love winning. This is a form of self-care. <laughs> you know, it's, Terrible. It's really like, man, we get into some throwdowns when it comes to, you know, when we're playing Magic the Gathering. And my son is so good at all of these games. His his strategic mind is like Vulcan level, you know, and he just kills me. He slays me at all these games. And I'm like, no, you can't do that. And he's like, yeah, actually, I can. And I'm like, no, I am winning here. He's like, no, actually, you're not. Very <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. If people want to connect with you or learn more about your organization, how can they do that? Thank you for asking that, Tamara. Um, my website, which is almost ready, is called The Culture Prism. One word, The Culture Prism, P-R-I-S-M dot com. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn and uh, I guess I'm on Instagram, although I, really social media is not my forte. But LinkedIn is usually where people can reach me too. If you enjoyed today's episode, please remember to leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you didn't enjoy it, well, you know, you need to worry about it. Don't you worry about it. Bye, y'all.